What can I say? Should I even mention the pandemic at this point? I mean, who would have thought that this would freeze our lives for an entire quarter in 2020? The year we all thought would be our year. Or I mean, <laughs> at least I was thinking that. <laughs> Two weeks into quarantine, I left Paris and found refuge in the countryside of Upper Austria. And yes, it has been a privilege. Not only did I wake up surrounded by nature every morning, but also just being an Austrian citizen has been a privilege of its own. It's been an emotional, insightful, uncertain time that has given me the opportunity to reflect on the past, the now, and ultimately my desires in life. I'm frankly super happy to have started this podcast since it's the best excuse to get in touch with people I admire, get to hear the personal story and the glimpse behind the scenes. Today's guest is Danny DeRoche, the founder of Kismet Concept Studio in New York City. Thanks to technology and specifically Instagram, I found Danny and her passion for vintage knits, something that instantly sparked a feeling of great intrigue. I mean, where does she find these amazing sweaters? How does she make vintage look so cool? And what's the story behind setting up her business? Danny established a vintage sourcing and design agency that offers research, curation, and design inspiration for fashion collections. We got together on Skype to talk about her Canadian upbringing, her mom's thrifting obsession, our style icons from that 70s show, and transitioning into being her own boss after years of working for big fashion brands. Do yourself a favor and follow Kismet Concept Studio on Instagram. I promise the vintage gems that Danny posts will brighten up your day. Without further ado, please enjoy episode number six of That's My Niche. And now over to Danny. Okay, yay, we're business. Let's do this. Danny, what's your job title? Well, I typically say that I'm founder of Kismet Concept Studio and a knitwear designer or knitwear specialist. That's usually how I describe myself. Do people tend to ask anything back? Oh, 100%. Yes. Um, especially if it's someone not in the fashion industry, like what I actually, what Kismet is and what I do is very confusing to people, even for people in the industry, unless they've been in like certain um, types of jobs. Um, so what I usually say to people is that I'm a knitwear designer and I'm vintage obsessed. And I basically created a business that combined those two passions. So in essence, I source vintage um, sweaters and knit inspiration. So like fabric cuttings, that sort of thing. Um, and I uh, show them to design teams, to designers, to brands, and sell them as design inspiration. So unlike if you were to just go to your vintage store on the corner or whatever, I'm really curating things based on, first of all, like my expertise as a knitwear designer. So I wouldn't, you know, I buy things that I know could be um, kind of reinvented for now in both terms of it feeling modern but also it being something that could be translated into today's technology. And then for each appointment that I have, I, I do research on who the brand is, what their aesthetic is. Um, and I put together a collection that's true to them. So a lot of these studios, they kind of like each season when they bring their collection around to different brands, it's kind of like, it's just a collection. It is what it is. And they show it as it is, but I take a lot of extra time to source things that I think are specific to that brand DNA. So even though they're vintage and I'm not hand making them myself, like a lot of the studios, there's a lot of like work that goes into the sourcing. Like I probably look at, I probably buy one sweater for every 100 that I look at. I'm very, um, really, I'm really specific about what I choose. And 
yeah. So it's it's really fun though. What made you decide that that's the niche that you wanted to carve out for yourself? Well, it all happened kind of organically. So I was working for big brands for most of my career. So like the first 10 years out of school, I was working for um, bigger brands. Um, and that was like somewhat like not a hundred percent by choice. I think that if I graduated and like really went in the direction of what felt right to me, I probably would have worked for smaller brands to start out, but I I'm Canadian. So I was here on a visa and I had to find brands that were able to sponsor me. And so naturally that's bigger brands. Um, so after like 10 years of doing that, I was starting to feel it just didn't feel right. Like the the brand I was working for at the time was just really not what I was for me, my aesthetic or like my didn't really express my values. Oh, express. That's funny that I said that. Cause that's the name of the brand that I worked for. Um, but so my husband and I got married, I got my green card and I was like, you know, maybe I need to take some time to leave this job and see if I can, go at it on my own, whether that's like freelancing or starting something new for myself. I wasn't fully sure. Um, mm. but I was just like, let's do this. So in December of 2018, so not that long ago, I left my job. And actually at that time I was planning to start a sweater line. So yeah, I, I took this free course at the SBA, it's a small business association in New York. And it was a free course called fast track new ventures. And it was all about like starting your own business. It was like all female. Was it all female? Maybe it wasn't actually, I can't remember, but, um, yeah. So I started like really crunching the numbers of starting my own line. Oh, and by the way, I wanted to produce domestically, which is like practically impossible. There's wow. like, there's maybe like five factories that I know of in New York. I mean, in the, the U.S. But so January of that year or the following year, 2019, I went to L.A. I had booked appointments with like three factories that I had researched out there. And I um, and I visited those factories and it was totally amazing. Like I don't even though I, I haven't like worked with any of them per se yet. Um, it was an amazing experience. Um, but funny story, while I was there, I sell vintage online, mostly um, on Etsy. Um, it's just like direct to consumer stuff. And I have like a lot of little side businesses. But anyways, I sold something online. It was a sweater. And the shipping address said, and it was a brand um, based out of London. And I looked up the name of the person who purchased it, of course, in LinkedIn, like a creep. And she was the knitwear designer there. So I was, I told my husband about this and he was like, Danny, you could do that. And I was like, eh, what do you mean? He was like, you could literally do that. Start a studio of vintage sweaters. And Seriously, like a month after that, I was talking to this girl that I used to work with. She's a print designer and she was starting to, to think of doing the same thing in terms of print. And um, she was like, you need to meet this woman, Patricia Nugent. She is selling an archive of vintage knit references. Yes. So, um, so yeah, I connected with her. And at first I was like, oh, maybe she'll sell me like 500 pieces or something. I can handpick them. But then I was just like, you know what, let's just like jump in. And so I bought the whole archive. She shipped it from Seattle to New York. It like literally I had these banker boxes of this archive in my apartment for like, like just stacked in my apartment for like, gosh, I think it was almost like six months before I found a studio that was like affordable and like, and at that point, like I actually felt like this is something that this is becoming something. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, that's kind of how it happened. Oh, and the name Kismet emerged from that because it all was Kismet serendipitous, you know, so it just felt right to call it that. What does your passion for vintage originate from? How did that start? Um, my parents actually up until 
like six months ago, they had a women's clothing store based in like the West coast of Canada. And, um, it actually started because when my mom and dad met, which was like, I think the story is that they met at like a flea market or a rummage sale or something. And, um, my dad had an antique store at the time. And my mom was like buying vintage things. And like, she was like the OG upcycler. So she would like one example of things she told me she would make is like, she would buy vintage men's silk tops. And then she would like sew pin tucks into the shoulder and make them fit like women and stuff. So that's how their company started was through vintage. So Gabrielle Chanel, like she, she, like she she did that kind of stuff. How progressive. Totally. Yeah. My mom is just like Chanel. Totally. She's (laughs) going to love listening to this podcast. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, definitely. Like my mom took me junking is what she calls it. Um, all through like my childhood and stuff. So that's always been a passion. Were you more obsessed with fashion from back then or also the music from those eras? Um, I mean, I was into like, music was like, I I mean, I was like a teenager during the time of like Napster and like, did you have that? Like, (laughs) definitely LimeWire and Napster. Yes, LimeWire. Yes, that one too. I was trying to think of what the other one was. Um, but I was like, as a teen, I was like, quote unquote, like an alternative girl or whatever. I mean, I can't even say that really, because I grew up so sheltered in like the little bubble we lived in. Like I, I went to a small school, like there were 64 girls. It was an all girls school, um, 64 girls in my graduating class. So, you know, I feel like today teenagers, like there are, options are limitless. Like they can find whatever like weird subculture niche thing that they, that works for them. And like, for me, it was like, I would find music from like alternative press magazine was the name of it. And I would just be like, Oh, that band looks cute. And I would just like download it on Napster. <laughs> Eventually I started, my dad listened to music from like, all around the world and like lots of like older stuff. So I grew up a lot on like Van Morrison and like, yeah. Mm-hmm. So were your girlfriends into the same things as you? I can say that because like my core group of friends, we are so different because the school was so small. I feel like a lot of these like big high school experiences, people um, kind of like get cliqued into little like groups based on like their music taste or their, the way they dress or their like, whether they're just sports or like math or whatever. And there was that at my school, of course, but like my group of friends, like we're so, and we're still friends. Um, we're so different. Like we're a really diverse group of friends. So, um, in terms of music, like there were a couple friends that we like overlapped a little bit, but, um, I think I was kind of like, in my own world a little bit. What university did you go to? I went to school in New York, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so I moved, I went to FIT, the Fashion mm-hmm. Institute of Technology in New York. So I moved to New York when I was, I just turned 18. Um, it was like crazy culture shock. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I came onto campus with like a suitcase and my mom, of course. And there were like a lot of, it's a state school. So there were a lot of people driving in from like Long Island or New Jersey and they were driving in with their minivans and like unloading like, like crates of bottled water. And it was just like, (laughs) it was just really crazy to me. It was, yeah, there were a lot of things that I, I mean, anyone moving to New York city, it's culture shock, of course, but, um, Mm. I didn't expect people to think of like me being from Canada as such a novelty, but it, mm. it did feel that way. I, there's, I feel horrible when I think back at how there's so many little Canadianisms that I used to say, like ways I pronounce words or like a, of course, mm-hmm. the natural thing people uh, like to joke about. 
um, that I don't say anymore because I was so like young and impressionable and it all kind of got like made fun of out of me, not in like a mean way, but like a playful way. But for me, obviously I was like, took it to heart. So, well, when you're 18, you just want to belong, right? Yeah, definitely. What made you pursue fashion in your studies? What subjects did you pick at university? So at FIT, I studied fashion design. And then after two years, so after you get your associate's degree, it's called here, um, then you can kind of choose a specialization. And I didn't think of myself as like, I never thought of like knitwear or sweaters as something that I had like a really specific interest in, but the choice to, to pursue the knitwear specialization was more like me being like forward thinking. Like I was like, I could continue if like sportswear, um, because I, I do like like ready to wear clothing or I could get really, really good at this one area of sportswear. Like I could get really good at knitwear. And I just thought it was like a good career move because the program at FIT is like really, really thorough. Like we, um, had, I think three stole machines. We had like a stole class where we learned to program, um, And a lot of us knit our term garments on the stole machine, which is like so cool that we got to do that. Um, and we learned like hands-on, like on the Dubier flat machines, on brother machines and pass apps. So it was like a re like I, it was amazing. I, I have no regrets from, from choosing that because, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think there are many other schools in the U S at least. Like I know there's a lot in like, London and England for sure. But, um, yeah. Was your family supportive about your studies or were they maybe concerned about it not being a stable career? You know, they have been like fully supportive always. Yeah. I've been very lucky with that. I think obviously that's because, or at least partially because they are in the fashion industry to begin with. So they know that it's like a real career path. Whereas like I had like, I can remember one specific friend in high school who like her true passion was clothing and fashion and apparel. And her parents were like, well, you have to get your bachelor's in business school first and then maybe you can pursue it. And mm -hmm. so I was really lucky that my family um, understood that it was like a real, a real like career um, choice to do that. What was your first job after graduation? So I, my dream internship, I, while I was in school was opening ceremony. And so I got my dream internship, which was amazing. I, I mean, it was interesting and amazing, <laughs> but, um, after I graduated, so it, this was 2010 and it was not easy to find a job. Um, mm -hmm. And I like, of course, wanted opening ceremony to hire me, but I figured pretty quickly that that wasn't going to happen. Um, and uh, so Urban Outfitters reached out to me mm -hmm. and I actually had an interview with the recruiter um, in the Ace Hotel, which is where they had, I guess not anymore, an opening ceremony location. And Umberto, who's like the opening mm -hmm. ceremony, creative director, owner. Um, he saw me having an interview and came over and said to the recruiter, you should hire her. She's amazing. And so I was like, Oh, okay, cool. I've got this job. It was pretty sweet. It's definitely like the coolest thing that's ever happened in my career. <laughs> that Ten years ago. And I was like, nice thing. Yeah. So yeah. Urban Outfitters is based in Philly. Um, it was, uh, it was a crazy experience. It was awesome. It was definitely a great first job, but not the most amazing place to work. They're not, I mean, it was amazing in some ways. The thing is, is they don't have an HR department there. So, which is crazy because the company's so big. Mm -hmm. So there was like a lot of, frustrating things that that like you couldn't really ever deal with because their whole policy was like 
a manage up policy. So like if you are having an issue with your boss, like confront your boss about it, which is like not always the easiest way to deal with things. Like, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, it was, it was a great experience. It gave me so many opportunities. Like the, um, designer I worked under when I started there, she left after I think like seven months of me working there. And then I was the only one on the design team. So like we had an annual trip to China and I went with like our creative director. Um, so that was crazy. I was like literally 20 years old and I was like going on this trip across the world. So it was a cool experience. I learned so much from that. Who are your favorite knit designers? My favorite, um, oh gosh, that's so hard. Um, I guess when I think about my favorites, they're mostly like kind of older brands that really like speak to my core obsession with, um, vintage really. So like I think of, um, Rudy Gernreich, is that how you say it? He's Austrian. So I feel like you should know. I I don't don't know him. You do. Once you look him up, you'll be like, oh, yes, of course, I know him. Um, but he's incredible, like lots of cut and sew knits. Um, and he was also just like a real innovator. And yeah, yeah, I see your face. Um, he was a real innovator in terms of like um, having just being more than just a fashion designer. Like he had like a real value that he donated to like the ACLU and what was really cool about him is he, he made designs that were meant to be unisex, which is really cool. And, and so ahead of its time. Um, but I mean, I also love like Steven Burroughs is another amazing designer, mostly cut and sewn knits. He's an FIT grad, early, like Betsy Johnson, Alley Cat, Castle Bajac. Mm-hmm. And of course, like, well, you can't forget like Chanel and Elsa Schiaparelli because they were kind of like, they were the reason for bringing knitwear into the mainstream, really. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm really, the more I like dig into the fashion history, the more I'm like realizing how much cooler knitwear is than just like what it is on its face. Like it really was like um, kind of this like empowering fabric in a way in like the early days because like think about what women used to wear prior to the 1920s like they were Mm -hmm. totally constrained and like like strapped in and then with the emergence and the innovation of knitwear it was like women could finally have the freedom to move they were finally able to participate in sport in you know swimming before then a woman was wearing like basically a gown into the water and you know, in the twenties that changed to like wool knitted swimsuits, which sounds awful to us now, but back then compared to what they were wearing before, it was like totally liberating. Especially because the industrial revolution enabled the production of fine gauge knit fabric. Yes, absolutely. Before knitwear was just, you know, like chunky ferrile sweaters or that sort of thing. So definitely brought a lot of innovation. That is still a stereotype, though. When you mention knit, people think scarf. Yes, that's true. That is for sure true. I mean, even myself, I remember when I was younger and I was wanting to go to FIT and I was like, okay, my goal before I go there is to understand the difference between a knit and a woven. Like that was something that like was, and I think about it now and I'm like, there's probably so many people that don't really understand the difference. Like, of course they know that a sweater is knit, but yeah, when it comes to like, you know, a t-shirt versus like a blouse, like the average person doesn't really understand what the difference is between those two fabrics. Yes. And the same with crochet. That's why I appreciate you pointing these things out on your Instagram. Oh my God. Yes. Crochet. It's like, I think about it as being like every time in my career, like talk about like working for big brands and stuff. And like, of course I, you know, reported to people who weren't necessarily sweater people and like every 
spring or summer, I just waited for someone to say like, oh, let's do crochet this year. And it was just like one of those things where I had to go through the motions. It was like, it became like almost like a speech I had to recite about like, okay, well, crochet cannot be done on a machine. You can do things that look like crochet or kind of like have this crochet feeling on a machine, but true crochet is something that can only be done by hand. Therefore, we cannot afford to do true crochet. But then of course we would develop it and we would, you know, wear out our factories that also knew we couldn't afford it. And it was just this pattern I had to go through every single year of my career. So yeah, if there's, if I, if you have noticed that I point that out every time that there's something crochet that I post on Instagram, it's, there's so much backstory to that. There is definitely an educational role to play because when producing knit, there are just so many parameters involved. But honestly, in some ways that's like the, it's kind of like a magic tool that like knitwear designers have, because if you don't have this background in knitwear, like, like I said, like if a director or something was asking me to do something like they, because of my background, they trust me and they, I feel like it kind of gives you a bit of authority. Whereas like if you were like a woven designer or something um, like a lot of directors feel like they can speak that language. So they don't have to maybe necessarily trust their like lower level designers as much. Whereas like in the knitwear field, I feel like you kind of automatically have this authority that you're more trust trustworthy because you have this mm-hmm. background, you know? Mm-hmm. So I feel like that's actually been helpful to me because I don't know. I've seen other people try and like voice opinions in like the woven tops world and it's harder to get their point across. Yeah, definitely. So what's your favorite vintage knit design era? Oh, that is very easy. Definitely like the late sixties, early seventies for sure. Like hands down. I mean, it was, I I feel like if the twenties were kind of like the first wave of empowering of like knitwear being in like an empower empowering kind of like feminist fabrication than like the sixties and seventies were like the second wave. Um, because it went from dressing being such a like formal uptight sort of thing for women. And then in the sixties and seventies, there was really like a revolution in the way that people dress. And I feel like at that time also there was kind of, more attention paid to like youth and what like young people really wanted to wear. And there was like definitely like an androgynous thing that came about. And yeah, I think there's just like so much more personality and fun expressed in the clothing in like the late sixties and early seventies that like really had never been done like that before, you know, like if I feel like we have to appreciate what came before that to truly understand like how empowering that must have been to be able to wear the types of things that they wore in the late sixties and early seventies. I just got through all 10 seasons of Mad Men and I can't believe I never watched it before because like watching the evolution of style through like from 1960 to 1970 is just like so, so cool to see. So definitely my fave. Oh my god, I have I, I think I stopped halfway with Mad Men. Really? Annoyed, yeah, because I kind of got annoyed with the storyline. But because you mentioned this. That's 70s. what I've heard so many people say. <laughs> yes. And I get but, it. There's some pretty wacky things that happen like near the end of the season. Yeah, it's a bit I, I was like, okay, this is too messy. I don't know. I don't know. It's a bit messy. <laughs> but lately I've really um <laughs> I've gotten into watching that 70s show again. Yes. I sometimes put that on in the background and every once in a while, like Kelso will be wearing like the most amazing, like cut and sew knit shirt. And I just like take a picture of my screen. Nothing ever happens with those pictures, but I'm just like, oh, so good. Or of course, Jackie, like her style is amazing. I mean, Jackie, can we talk about this for a minute? Honestly, I thought, oh my God, I think I have a new style icon here. Yes, yes, (laughs) for sure. Colors and also the little details. It's so good. So yeah, like rainbow unicorn sweaters. Yeah, so good. 
I get that for sure. What does a typical day in the studio look like for you? Um, well, there's no such thing. There's no typical day. It's all over the place. Um, especially right now, it's hard to even remember what it was like before because I've been spending so much time at home. I don't get to my studio that often. My studio is in like, it's in an art space. So it's very, there's lots of like communal areas and the ceilings don't like, or the walls don't completely meet the ceilings. So there's like a lot of like dust in the air. because there's like woodworkers in there. Um, but like, you know, I, I actually had one of my like top clients reached out to me a week or so ago, which was awesome because I wasn't sure when that was going to happen again. And they wanted to see like fall, some fall um, sweaters and cut and sew knits. So I was there last week and I basically like, I know that client really, really well. So I know what they like. I know what they want to see. So I basically just went through my whole archive. I don't have that many sweaters. The archive I bought was actually all I would say like 98% was like cut and sew cuttings mostly. There were like a few sweaters sprinkled in there, but like really my bread and butter has been the sweaters that I sell to my clients and those I'm just like constantly sourcing. So I haven't been sourcing a ton obviously recently because I wasn't sure like, you know, when people's budgets were going to be back to normal or like even close to back to normal. Um, so, but I had a lot of things for them because they work like way ahead of calendar. So I pulled things together and, um, so I just spent time kind of just like pulling and seeing what looked good together and what would work for them and like discarding things if it didn't feel right. Um, and then I just photographed everything and I wouldn't, I feel a little hesitant to send people photos usually because you know, even if I watermark it, like what's stopping them from just like using that as a reference, but they're like a really good client of mine and I trust them. So I was more open to doing that with them. They said that it works better for them when they receive pictures as opposed to like a zoom call, which I totally understand. Like how do you assort things together when you're like on a zoom call? That's really, really difficult. When I come to their office, usually I would be packing up a suitcase and bringing it to their office. Um, and they would just, you know, kind of like move things around and like assort them into groups and then come up with what they feel is the best, um, assortment for them. So yeah, that, that's pretty typical if I have like a, a client meeting or something coming up, but otherwise it's a lot of time on my computer, you know, like whether I'm doing things like working on tech packs or apps for someone or, um, even just like working like on my brand or something. So um, working on my website or Instagram, that sort of thing. Um, it's a one woman show. Yeah. Yes. It's a lot of what? stuff for one person to do, like marketing and like all the like social media content and that sort of thing. It's a lot. Yeah. You need a lot of different hats and then. Yeah. And it's not like anyone's paying me for that part of it. Also. <laughs> What has been the most challenging project you've worked on so far? Um, honestly, like since I left the full-time world, it's, I've had like lots of challenges, obviously, but like nothing was more challenging than working full-time for a brand. Like that was really hard, especially when it wasn't something that like really like spoke to my core. Like I said before, it was like, like my like crochet anecdote. Like that was the kind of stuff that just like murdered my soul. Like all the wheel spinning you have to do that, you know, is not going to amount to anything is so frustrating. It's like all these like hats you have to satisfy. Um, that was really, really stressful. Honestly, if there's, one positive in the fashion industry, well, no, there's hopefully a lot of positives that come out of this pandemic within the fashion industry. Like there's so many things that need to change, but in terms of like day to day, I feel like I hope that brands start understanding that they don't necessarily need like 
full-time in-house design teams, like if they can be better at um, planning and strategizing then and, and not having to like do things over and over and over again as a result, then I feel like it would save so much time and energy and therefore money if brands we're more open to working with freelancers. And I'm not saying like fire all your full-time staff, but like a lot of people have been let go or furloughed. So I hope that there's like more of a openness to like a different structure, whatever that may look at, look like for each, each brand. I think there is also the trust element, you know, the control mm -hmm. factor. And yes. I think a lot of old structures had to just break up their mindset and adjust to a totally new way of working. Where Whereas before they would say, no, it's not possible because of this and this and yeah. that. And now they just For have sure. to. And it was not a problem. It was not a problem. Exactly. Exactly. It's like, I was actually working with a brand like middle of March and it was like technically like an in-house freelance job. And that first day that I worked, I think it was like March 15th, which was like where things like truly changed in New York and like the U S in general. And like, I was so, so anxious going into work that day because like I take this train that's like notoriously jam packed at rush hour. And like, so often I like can't even fit on the train. So I have to wait until ones go by like jam packed, like sardines. And I literally stood on the platform having a panic attack for one hour before I finally felt comfortable getting on the train because it was empty enough. And then two stops later got off because I was like too many people had come on. And finally I got to, I took an Uber to their office, which was like a $60 Uber because I was like, this is literally my, I've worked with them before. So it wasn't so bad. But after that one day in their office, I was like, I emailed, the director the next day and I was like look I don't feel comfortable coming in like I have asthma like I, and at that point there were so many unknowns I was like I I'm just like there's so many people I was like this train is festering with the coronavirus like I just it just brought out the worst in my anxiety honestly but um so at first she was like a little like oh well I don't know let's see how it works today if it doesn't work with you being working from home like then you know we'll have to you know not go about it this way. And I felt awful because like I'm, I'm consider myself a very reliable person, but then literally fast forward one day and the entire office was working from home. So like went from like being like, I don't know if this is workable to like, we don't have a choice. We're all working from home. And guess what? It worked, you know, yeah. like, and they actually had some amazing systems laid out that like made it very, very seamless. So, mm -hmm. I mean, of course it was hard, like, especially in such a tactile industry, mm -hmm. um, it comes with huge challenges, but we've figured it out. So, yeah, yeah. It, sometimes it depends on the industry, but I feel like a lot of people have benefited in so many ways, um, to just yeah. rethink the way they work. Yeah. And necessity is the mother of invention. Mm. before this it wasn't necessary to make changes because people were just like going on with the way things had always been done but it became necessary and now I'm hoping that like things change because of this you know mm -hmm. around what time do you usually get up um I get up early I get up at like well for some people I guess it's not early but I like get up at seven despite whether I go to bed at like one or 2 a.m. Like my biological clock just like wakes me up at seven. Do you have rituals and routines to keep you grounded? I try to because I feel like, I feel like the one challenge, the biggest challenge with working for yourself is not really knowing when to start and stop because you're not like clocking in and clocking out at a certain time. So I really working on that. Like still, I'm not very good at it, but 
like right now I'm trying this new thing where like if I, instead of waking up early and just like laying in bed and, you know, looking at my phone, I, I get out of bed and I have started like reading outside for like half an hour, an hour. Um, I was doing yoga every morning for a couple months and then I kind of fell off for a bit. So yeah, I, I try and have, I I'm trying, but I'm not like super good at routines because I'm always just like, okay, let's get to work, you know? And then never really stop until I'm like passed out, like literally anywhere. I'll fall asleep anywhere. <laughs> if I'm tired enough. Did the pandemic give you the opportunity to explore a bit what you, what you're drawn to when you want to take your mind off of things? I wish, honestly, not really. I feel like I have probably not spent as much time like focusing on like my mental health as I should have. Um, cause I was just like, okay, here's this all this time that I should be taking advantage of. And like, I keep reading things like we're still in a pandemic. It's okay to take things slow. And like truly everything is taking me like four times longer now than it used to just because there's like so many things happening. And like, I'm just, yeah, my emotions change every single day, like hour to hour. <laughs> so I am still four months in working on that and thinking about that, but I haven't really like, I, I, I still have work to do on that for sure. Yeah. What do you do when you want to take Danny time? I feel like that's <clears throat> the upcycling thing kind of started as that. And then of course now it's, it's become more than just that. Like I, I started, um, sourcing vintage towels. I had a few vintage towels that I ended up like fashioning into hats. <laughs> I know I sound insane. I do like a lot of things. Um, so that honestly, that has been like, even though I'm like a, a knitwear person, it's, I was kept telling myself like, okay, you should start like really getting more into hand knitting, that sort of thing. But I feel like because it's so aligned with what I do, it felt like too much of a like task. So like sewing at a sewing machine felt like more of an escape to me. Mm -hmm. So honestly, just like, and I've been sewing lots of masks and stuff. Um, so that's, that's felt like every time I'm sitting in front of the sewing machine, it felt like, in a way like meditative because I can mm. kind of just went out and like tune into that. So, yeah. I have one, actually I have one knit related question. No, it's a vintage related question okay. because me personally, I don't do well in secondhand shops because I always feel like, Oh my God, I look like a grandmother. Like I can't, like I can't. <laughs> You mean like buying vintage? Like you, you don't know how to wear it? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So how do you wear it and pair it without risking to look like a little granny? That's so funny because I like don't even... It's so natural to me. Like 90% of my clothes are vintage. So I don't even think about that. But then I don't think I look like a granny at all. But maybe I do. I don't know. I think it's about... <laughs> finding you know what I think it is I I've heard people say it this way before and I think there is some truth to it although I don't think it's like an exact science is it's like figuring out <clears throat> what decade you love and whether that's because of like the fabrications or like the types of prints that were used the colors the silhouettes and kind of like starting there and then maybe like incorporating pieces from that decade or specific aesthetic into like what you already wear. And like, there's certain staples that a lot of people will never feel comfortable leaving out of their closet. Like whether it's like a skinny jean or something like that. Um, and so maybe if, if someone weren't super naturally, um, able to wear vintage I think that maybe like integrating like pieces of it, instead of like doing the head to toe thing which if you're like me might happen eventually but um I think it's like about incorporating pieces into like the silhouettes you already feel comfortable wearing or the color store you already feel comfortable wearing or something like that I have to channel my inner Jackie Burkhardt Because I feel, I think part of the problem is also there is a lot of stuff from the 80s. And if I put something yes. on 
instantly i look i look so 80s the 80s are really really tough and yeah especially if you go into like thrift stores nowadays like you find a lot of you can't really find much even from the 70s even the 80s can be difficult it's mostly like 90s and like oh unfortunately lots of like current or within the past 20 years like fast fashion is now in thrift stores which is sad but they're they're not people don't buy them to wear forever so they get rid of them and if they don't fall apart which they do in most cases they end up in in thrift stores but um yeah the 80s are are hard unless you do it like Isabel Morant does or like Ula Johnson where they like approach the 80s in like such a beautiful refined way um and so not like the grotesque like over the top shiny sparkly shoulder padded mm. that yeah. a lot of people think of when they think of the 80s where can people find you Danny? I think the best way to find me is probably Instagram because it kind of can direct you to any channel. So yeah, I think Instagram, Kismet Concept Studio. And what are you looking forward to post-quarantine? Um, humans, human interaction. <laughs> I don't know how soon that will be, especially being in New York. It's going to take a lot longer, but like, you know, I... I hope that it kind of like we were going in this place going where at least in New York, I don't know if it feels like this everywhere where everyone's just kind of like in their own zone and like so super focused on their own experiences. And <clears throat> yeah, I hope that, that people become more compassionate, I guess. It's the only word that really sums that up. It's been so nice talking to you, Danny. Let's do this. You too. I want to know so much about you and I was I like feel like And this was my chat with Danny today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If there is anyone you know who you think would be perfect for the show, recommendations are always welcome. For news, workshops and blog posts, all things Paris, head over to lebureau.com and I'll catch you next time with another episode of That's My Niche.